Part 3, Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1 by Edward Tyus Cook. The Queen, Miss Nightingale, and Lord Panmure. Continued. 4. Thus armed and thus resolved, Miss Nightingale set out for Scotland under her father's escort. Between father and daughter there was genuine affection, but Mr. Nightingale was in indifferent health and was constitutionally of a retiring disposition. After a few days he beat a retreat. It had been supposed that the foray would be short. In fact, it lasted for a month. Miss Nightingale reached Edinburgh on September 15, and staying there for a few weeks, took occasion to inspect the barracks and hospitals. She left for Burke Hall on September 19th, and two days later she was introduced to the Queen and the Prince at Balmoral by Sir James Clark. She put before us, wrote the Prince in his diary, all the defects of our present military hospital system, and the reforms that are needed. We are much pleased with her. She is extremely modest." A few days later, September 26, the Queen drove over from Balmoral to Burke Hall, and Miss Nightingale had tea and a great talk with Her Majesty. The impression made on the Queen has been already recorded in her letter to the Duke of Cambridge. I wish we had her at the War Office. The Duke, who was not exactly a red-hot reformer, must have been thankful that the wish of his august relative for a new broom did not extend to the horse guards. My hopes were somewhat raised, wrote Miss Nightingale to Sir John McNeil, September 27, by the great willingness of the Queen, Prince Albert, and Sir George Grey, all of whom I have seen together and separately, to listen and to ask questions. I have had most satisfactory interviews, she wrote your Uncle Sam, September 25, with the Queen, the Prince, and Sir George Grey. Satisfactory, that is, as far as their will— not as their power is concerned. Miss Nightingale is not the only impatient reformer who has been tempted to wish the knots of red tape could be cut by a direct exercise of the royal prerogative. The prince knew in what limits he and the queen moved. Nothing could be done except through ministers, and the minister for war would shortly be in attendance at Balmoral. The queen, continued Miss Nightingale, wished me to remain to see Lord Panmure here, rather than in London, because she thinks it is more likely that something might be done with him here with her to back me. I don't, but I am obliged to succumb. So she stayed on at Burke Hall, her command visit to Balmoral being postponed till Lord Panmure should arrive. The Queen sent a good character of Miss Nightingale to the Ministry in advance. Lord Panmure she wrote, will be much gratified and struck with Miss Nightingale, her powerful, clear head, and simple, modest manner. The Queen had accepted with great grace the suggestion that any letter of recommendation sent by Miss Nightingale to Lord Panmure should be sent also to Her Majesty direct. 5. The point of interest among Miss Nightingale's reform cabinet now shifted from the Queen to her ministers. The court had been won. Lord Auckland says, wrote Lord Verney to her sister, that he hears from Lord Clarendon that the Queen was enchanted with you. 
but what impression would she make upon the less susceptible bison, for so the burly Scot, Lord Panmure, was called by Miss Nightingale and her friends. She had reported herself to him immediately on her return from the East, and he had replied politely, but postponed the pleasure of an interview. Mr. Herbert was not sure that much would come of it, even in the sympathetic air of Balmoral. I gather, he wrote, October 3, that upon the whole you are pleased with the result of your conversations with the Queen and Prince Albert. I hope you will do equally well with Panmure, though I am not sanguine, for though he has plenty of shrewd sense, there is a vis inertiae in his resistance which is very difficult to overcome. Sir John McNeil was more helpful. He attached great importance to the personal factor in Miss Nightingale's favour. I anticipate considerable advantage, he wrote, September 29, from your interview with Lord Panmure. He has seen your name in every newspaper, and probably has no very accurate, or perhaps a very inaccurate, notion of what sort of person Miss Florence Nightingale is. He may perhaps think that a lady whose name is so frequently mentioned can hardly be indifferent to popular applause, and that with so strong a hold upon the feelings of the nation she is not unlikely to use it for the gratification of personal ambition. If he has such notions, he will be undeceived. He will find that influenced by higher motives you have no desire to employ your influence for any other purpose than to do all the good you can in the work which you have chosen, and that the absence of personal motive it is which gives you the courage and the right to speak fearlessly the whole truth, and to persevere in the direct line of duty whatever may be the difficulties or the obstacles. He will see that you have no desire to become in any sense a rival, and that it rests with him to make you a coadjutor or an opponent, as he may be willing or unwilling to promote the good which you consider it your plain duty as far as in you lies to carry out. Sir John's attitude to Miss Nightingale was always a little paternal, and I think that we may perhaps read between the lines of his well-turned sentences a hint and a caution under the guise of an encomium. The hint was not needed. She was entirely free from any temptation to use her popularity for purposes of personal ambition, but she was to show considerable skill in her use of it as a weapon in reserve for furthering her public objects. Mr. Herbert and Sir John McNeil were both right. The personal factor prevailed, as Sir John hoped, and Miss Nightingale won the minister, even as she had won the court, or seemed to win him. He promised all she asked, but it was also as Mr. Herbert feared, and the force of passive resistance was long maintained. When Lord Panmure reached Balmoral, Miss Nightingale was commanded thither. The court circular, October 6, chronicled her attendance at church with the Queen, and at the ball given to the Gillies it was noticed that she was seated with the royal family. She had an opportunity to tell the prince the whole story of her experiences in the East. Another side of her interests also came into play on this occasion. She had talks with Prince Albert on metaphysics and religion. Then Lord Panmure, following in the steps of his sovereign, went to see Miss Nightingale at Burke Hall, and they had long conversations. "'You may like to know,' wrote Mr. John Clark, October 13, "'that you fairly overcame Pan, 
we found him with his mane absolutely silky, and a loving sadness pervading his whole being. I forget whether I told you, wrote Sidney Herbert, November 2nd, that the bison wrote to me very much pleased with his interview with you. He says that he was very much surprised at your physical appearance, as I think you must have been with his. God bless you. Lord Panmure, I suspect, was one of those men who presume that any strong-minded woman will be physically ill-favoured. At any rate, Miss Nightingale greatly impressed the minister, even as the Queen had predicted. In general terms, Lord Panmure seemed very favourable to Miss Nightingale's suggestions. It was agreed that she should presently write out her experiences with notes on necessary reforms for the information of the government, and in this request the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, associated himself with Lord Panmure. The Minister for War seemed well disposed towards a scheme to which she attached great importance, the establishment of an army medical school. He agreed in principle to the appointment of a royal commission. So she had gained, it seemed, all she wanted, and the minister threw in an additional point of his own. The plans for the hospital at Netley, the first general military hospital, were at this time far advanced. Lord Panmure would send the plans to Miss Nightingale, and would be much obliged for her remarks upon them. Conversation on this and all the other subjects just mentioned was to be resumed when they would both be in London in November. 6. When news of the spoils, which Miss Nightingale had brought back from her highland foray, reached her little cabinet of reformers, their hopes ran high, and arrangements were promptly made for meetings and consultations. The lady-in-chief broke her journey southwards at Edinburgh, in order to confer again with Sir John McNeill. On October 15 she was back at Lee Hurst, and entered into correspondence with other of the Confederates. On November 2nd she came to London, making her headquarters at the Burlington in Old Burlington Street, the favourite hostelry at this time of her family, a house which came to be known among those behind the scenes as the Little War Office. She drew up lists of an ideal royal commission and circulated it among her allies for their suggestions, and in the case of those whom she proposed to nominate for their consent. One of these latter was her friend and physician at Scutari, Dr. Sutherland. I have just received your letter, he wrote, November 12th, and am led to believe that there must be a foundation of truth under the old myth about the Amazon women somewhere in the east of Scutari. All I can say is that if you had been queen of that respectable body of old days, Alexander the Great would have had rather a bad chance. Your project has developed itself far better than I expected, and I think I see a way of doing good, and therefore I shall serve on the commission. Get Alexander. Nobody else, if you cannot. He is our man. I am to meet you tonight at Sir James Clark's to dinner, and shall be very glad to talk over the subject further. Dr. Sutherland assumed it will be seen that the Amazon would carry him in, and she did. Over Dr. Alexander there was a stiff fight. Miss Nightingale had been greatly impressed in the Crimea by his skill, fearlessness and activity. He had now received an appointment in Canada, and Lord Panmure objected to recalling him. But Mr. Herbert made his own acceptance of the chairmanship conditional on the appointment of Dr. Alexander, the ablest and most effective man of our army. 
Sir James Clark's consent to serve was doubtless secured at the dinner just mentioned. Sir James Ranald Martin was also willing, and he had a candidate of his own. Far, he wrote to Colonel Tullock, November 11, ought to be a member. I wish you would take an early opportunity of bringing the question before Miss Nightingale with all the force of which you are capable. She was already in correspondence with Dr. William Farr. They had a link in their common passion for statistics. She did not succeed in carrying him on to the commission, but they collaborated in the preparation of statistical evidence for it. Then she approached Sir Henry Storks, who was willing to serve. She hoped to be able to include her friend Colonel Lefroy also, but there she failed. That Sidney Herbert was the chairman of her choice goes without saying. The other appointment to which she naturally attached vital importance was that of a secretary, and her choice fell upon Dr. Graham Balfour. Having settled the commissioners, Miss Nightingale proceeded to draft their instructions, and this draft also she circulated for criticism and advice. She was now ready for the promised interview with Lord Panmure. In the morning of the fateful day, Sir James Clark wrote to her, I think it would be well when you see Lord Panmure to make him understand that the inquiry is intended as, and must be comprehended, an investigation into the whole medical department of the army, and everything regarding the health of the army. A needless reminder to her who had everything cut and dried in that sense long before. I long to hear, wrote Mr. Herbert, what results you obtain from the bison. Miss Nightingale preserved her note of the results written at that time, and it is so characteristic of her humour that I print it very nearly in extenso. November 16. My pan here for three hours. Wrote down. President, Mr. Herbert. Jury, Mr. Herbert, General Sturks, Colonel Lefroy. Army doctors, Dr. A. Smith, Dr. McLachlan, Dr. Brown. Civil doctors. Dr. Sutherland, Dr. Martin, Dr. Farr. Secretary, Dr. Balfour, Army Doctor. Will have doctors balanced. Not fair. Two soldiers reckon as against civil element. Whenever I represented it, I did not know old Pan was so sharp, he offered to take off Colonel Lefroy. So I had to knock under. Won't bring back Alexander from Canada. We'll have three Army Doctors. So, like a sensible general in retreat, I named Dr. Joseph Brown, Surgeon Major, Grenadier Guards, therefore not wedded to Dr. Smith, an old peninsular and reformer. Left Lord P. his MacLachlan, who will do less harm than a better man. He has generously struck out Milton. Seeing him in such a coming-on disposition, I was so good as to leave him Dr. Smith, the more so as I could not help it. Have a tough fight of it, Dr. Balfour as secretary. Pan amazed my condescension in naming a military doctor, so I concealed the fact of the man being a dangerous animal and an obstinate innovator. Failed in one point, unfairly. Pan told Sir J. Clark he was to be on. Won't have him now. Sir J. Clark has become interested. Agreeable to the Queen to have him, just as well to have her on our side. Besides things Lord P. finds convenient to forget, has really an inconveniently bad memory as to names, facts, dates, and numbers. Hope I know what discipline is too well, having had the honour of holding Her Majesty's commission, 
to have a better memory than my chief. Pan has four army doctors, really. According to his principle, I have a right to four civilians. Instructions General and comprehensive, comprising the whole army medical department and the health of the army at home and abroad. Semi-official letter from Secretary of State on memorandum from President giving details. Smith, equal parts lacrimose and threatening, will say, I did not understand that we were to inquire into this. My master, jealous, does not wish it to be supposed he takes suggestions from me, which crime indeed very unjust to impute to him. You must drag it through. If not you, no one else. 1. Colonel Lefroy to be instructed by Lord P. to draw up scheme and estimate for Army Medical School, appendix to his own military education. I won. 2. Netley Hospital plans to be privately reported on by Sutherland and me to Lord P. I won. 3. Commissariat to be put on the same footing as Indian. I lost. 4. Camp at Aldershot to do for themselves. Kill cattle, bake bread, build, drain, shoemake, tailor, etc. Lord P. will consider. Quite agrees, means will do nothing. 5. Sir J. Hall not to be made Director General with Lord P. in office. I won. 6. Colonel Tullock to be knighted. I lost. Unless I can make Colonel T. accept an agreement, which I shan't. 7. About statistics, Lord P. said, 1. The strength of these regiments averaged only 200. 2. Deny the mortality. 3. Said that statistics prove anything. And I, as soldier, must not know better than my chief. 8. Lord P. contradicted everything, so that I retained the most sanguine expectations of success. A good three hours' work but many months were to elapse before Lord Panmure's promise to appoint a commission was fulfilled. It will be convenient, however, to anticipate the course of events in one respect, and to finish here the story of the personnel of the commission. Lord Panmure at once wrote to Mr. Herbert, asking him to accept the chairmanship. I wrote to Panmure, he sent word to Miss Nightingale from Wilton, November 25, as agreed between us, as suaviter as I could, as to the motto, but in re trying to name the commission and define the instructions. I hope I shall hear tomorrow from him, and I will let you know how the land lies the moment I get any sign from him. Supposing that he yields, it will be a task of great labour and difficulty, but one well worth undertaking with a fair prospect of attaining an immense good, even if we do not get all we want. If he stands out, we must hold another council for which I will run up. The text of Mr. Herbert's letter to Lord Panmure has been printed elsewhere. On the matter of personnel, he suggested General Storks and Colonel Lefroy, two army doctors, one of whom he insisted should be Dr. Alexander, two civil doctors, one of whom should be Sir James Clark, a sanitary authority, Dr. Sutherland, and lastly, a good examining lawyer. The commission, as ultimately appointed, consisted of Mr. Herbert, chairman, Mr. Augustus Stafford, M.P., General Storks, Dr. A. Smith, Dr. T. Alexander, Sir T. Phillips, Sir J. Ranald Martin, Sir James Clark, and Dr. J. Sutherland, with Dr. Graham Balfour as secretary. 
if the reader will compare the ten names resulting from Miss Nightingale's bargaining with Lord Panmure, it will be seen that there were four changes. She lost one friend, Colonel Lefroy, but gained another, Mr. Stafford. She gained Dr. Alexander in place of Dr. MacLachlan, and Sir James Clark in place of Dr. Brown. Dr. Farr was struck off in favour of Mr. Herbert's good examining lawyer, Sir T. Phillips. He was the one dark horse, and before the commission sat, Miss Nightingale was asked to meet him. We propose an irregular mass, wrote Mrs. Herbert to her, May 12, 57, as Sidney thinks Sir T. Phillips wants cramming. There was on the commission only one upholder of the old regime, Dr. Andrew Smith. Had the facts recited in this chapter been known at the time, Miss Nightingale's opponents might have found some warrant for a suggestion that she had packed the commission. But she and Mr. Herbert packed it only in the public interest. In discussions about women's rights, it is sometimes said that women need no other opportunities for influence than such as have always been within their reach. Miss Nightingale, who was in favour of female suffrage, would hardly have gained more influence by the position of a vote. But then very few women, and not many men, have the opportunities, the industry, the mental grasp, and the strength of will, which in combination were the secret of the Nightingale power. Lord Panmure delayed his formal reply to Mr. Herbert's letter of conditions, but sent a short note meanwhile of a friendly character. Mr. Herbert at once forwarded it to Miss Nightingale, November 30, 56, and said, I hope the note augurs well. All I can promise is to do my best, and to postpone all other business to this one till it is achieved. I shall require great assistance from and through you. I shall like to see all that you are writing as it goes on, if you see no objection. It would probably tell me much, and lead me to question, and so learn more. Thus, then, three months after her return from the Crimean War, broken in bodily health, was this indomitable woman thrown into the maelstrom of work, which will be described in the next chapter. But it was work for the salvation of the British army. She stood at the altar of the murdered men, and she shrank from no self-sacrifice. End of Part 3, Chapter 1 The Queen, Miss Nightingale, and Lord Panmure Part 2